everyone. Thanks for coming back to join our conversation on sex, addiction, and relationships. My name is Jeannie Vitoni, and I'm here with my friends, Wendy Conquest, Dan Drake, and Tim Stein. And today we're talking about empathy, empathy in a therapeutic sense with couples. And um, so that's where we are. Let's start it off. What do you guys think of empathy? I think this is a great topic. I'm so happy that we're talking about this today. Um, it comes up a lot, I think, in uh, social media and just the general public. But I think, you know, the first piece is what does it mean? And then why is it important? So um, what do you think? I, I love this topic of empathy. I'm, I'm constantly talking about it with my clients. But when I think about it, you know, while this is so important in the clinical work that that I do, with addicts and also with partners, you know, I, I think it's such an important life skill that in, in some ways has been overlooked in the past. And I think right now uh, with the work Brene Brown has done recently, it, it's getting its due and it's really coming into the consciousness of, of culture in general. And I love that. I love that empathy is something that we as a larger culture are starting to look at and really value. Uh, and I, I'm looking forward to, to exploring it today in our, our conversation. You know, I, rem I remember um, when I was younger, this, we, uh, and I hope I'm not dating myself here, but um, the phrase, put yourself in somebody else's shoes. Mm -hmm. So if you wanted to really try to understand somebody else or um, understand their experience or their feelings, that that's what, I remember my mom and dad saying that, well, just put yourself in their shoes. And so it was this idea of shifting perspective from yourself to uh, somebody else. And I'll just, it seems so simple on the surface to do that, right? Like if I can just take pause for a second, think about what someone else's experience is, doesn't that seem like it should be easy? I, I don't know, at least in my practice with all the couples I work with, if they did more of that, if they put themselves in each other's shoes, I think things would go so much better. Yeah. Just period. There's right? a, but there's some challenges and some nuances that we're, we're doing differently these days. Like how many of us as kids didn't either actually say it or think to ourselves when our parents are threatening, you know, there are kids starving in Africa that would love to have the food that you've left on your plate, you know, fine, box the food up and send it to them. I don't care, you know, but, you know, they're trying to teach us empathy, but there's some nuances to it that we're starting to explore and I think deal with better as a as, as a culture in general. So yes. we have today with us, Carol Jurgensen Sheets, also known as Carol the Coach. And she has really been working on empathy and in couples work. So let's get her to join the conversation and see what her thoughts are. Come on, Carol. Welcome, Carol. Hey. Hello, Carol. Carol. <laughs> so good to see you. So as you may have heard, we're talking about empathy and you know what it means in general and I really liked what you said Tim life skill but working with couples and um, you seem to know a lot about this because there's I have two books here that talk a lot about it and maybe there's another book coming but how do you how do you see empathy how do you define it in work in, in your work well you know for me I really do believe it's that simple definition of putting yourself in someone else's shoes but it's so much more complex because it really means not only being there and putting yourself in their shoes, but listening to what is going on with them. And that includes- That's hard work. 
Mm-hmm. Brene Brown calls it perspective taking. Mm-hmm. Um, she has the best video on empathy. It's only three minutes and 46 seconds long. And it really talks about something that I've talked about in both of my books. It's about really holding that person in your hands and seeing for the first time, perhaps, what they're really trying to communicate with you. And we are a society that you know lives on attention deficit disorder and we're multitasking and we're doing a zillion things. And so we've got that to combat as well as how often do we really sit and just listen and not even think about the dialogue in our own head for what we wanna say next. Yeah. Do you guys see this? I'm sorry, Tim, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I I love what you're talking about and sort of like understanding the nuances that get in the way of it and how it's more complex. The the piece with Brene, and I love that video that she's put out. I know the one you're talking about with the bear and the fox and the deer, and it's such a great video. Um, I read a book of hers on management later on. and And what I loved in that book in particular is she revisited empathy and she talked about how in her research, they'd identified those first four things. I believe they are recognizing the other person's experiences, their own, staying out of judgment, recognizing what emotion experience, emotional experience that person might be experiencing and then communicating that. And then she said, but in our research, we found a fifth element that's really important with empathy, which is the ability to recognize what might be going on with me that is interfering with that empathy process. And I think that that last piece is so important because, you know, we can, well, I'm trying to do all this stuff, but am I resentful? Uh, am I feeling triggered right now? Um, am I coming from a place of, 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 of abundance and feeling like everybody's got whatever they want? So I don't really have an understanding why you're feeling deprived. Or am I coming from a, a place of deprivation and I'm feeling like, you know, don't take anything that's mine because I don't have enough. What's going on on my side? that might get in the way of me really being able to be empathetic with whoever it is I'm interacting with. Well, can I just add to that, Tim? I, I think, you know, we work probably, a lot of us work with betrayal trauma or with infidelity or sex addiction. And so to me, one of those huge barriers is shame, which Carol, I know you've addressed in your book. Can you speak to the role of shame and how you help would, would help with client or a listener who's, you know, struggling with shame, how to, how they might become more empathetic? Well, yes, and that is why I talk about shame is because shame absolutely shuts the door on empathy. When somebody goes into shame, they react. They either react angrily or they react by walking away and as as, uh, John Gottman calls it, stonewalling. Well, the truth of the matter is when that occurs, the other person says, oh my gosh, I was sharing a feeling, I was sharing a thought. And all of a sudden he or she made it all about them because they aren't able to contain their own feelings, as Tim said, their own reactions to what's going on between the two of them. Now, I am a person that really helps couples work with empathy, but it's 101. It's empathy 101. And so we don't get to that fifth stage until maybe the third or fourth year of working together because the first four steps are so tough. Um, It's tough for couples to commit to sitting with each other, facing each other, you know, 
knees to knees, looking at each other's eyes, really noticing the posture, the affect, the tone of voice, the pain in their eyes. You know, that's where we've got to start. We've got to start with the basics. And I think as clinicians and coaches and professionals all over the world, it's easy to get into what they're talking about and not to support their really their ability to attune with each other. And that's empathy. Can you, just for listeners who may not be as familiar, when you use the word attune, and I'm totally with you and agree, can you explain a little bit what attunement is? Mm -hmm. Well, it's the hardest thing in the world to do with distressed couples. But in general, attunement means that you are connecting with that other person and you are seeing it from their point of view. It's that closeness, as I said, that connection, and it's that relational embodiment of we're one. We are a team together, and we want to work this out, or we want to walk this journey together. Mm -hmm. And that's true connection, and that certainly is empathy. So I'm mm -hmm. glad you said that, Jeannie, because I love that word attunement, but for most people, they may not have ever heard of it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I can imagine so feeling it, knowing it, but never using that kind of a word like, oh, he totally gets me or she really understands me. And that's that closeness. I'm sorry, Wendy. Yeah. No, the, yeah. So Carol, when, when you have two people then, and they're, they, they sit down and they're face to face and, and one starts talking about their feelings and the other one is really trying to attune and understand and then the other person says something that um, causes a reaction, causes defensiveness, causes uh, that 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 feeling or that brain to to say, oh, now they're attacking me or now they're criticizing me. So, what do you suggest when that happens for the couple? Well, that's why I say it's one on one. It's empathy one on one because truly. For instance, in my book, first I talk about when somebody's in distress, what is each one of their brains going in, going into? What are their brains experiencing that may prevent them from really listening? Mm -hmm. But the second chapter of the book is on feelings. And, you know, there are a lot of people that have seen the feeling wheel. They've seen the feeling chart with thousands of feelings on it. And the truth of the matter is I keep it to the simple five. And those five are anger, sadness, loneliness, fear, and happiness. Now, Dan brought up shame. And shame and guilt are definitely feelings that get in the way of empathy. But to initially help a couple, we talk about those five because I want them to be able to identify those before we go into shame. If I notice that somebody's going into shame, then I wanna say, can we take a break? And can I give you a couple of mantras or a couple of suggestions so that you don't feel bad about yourself? Because when you go into shame and you feel bad about yourself, guess what happens? You make it all about you. And really, she was just trying to convey some thoughts, some feelings and beliefs that she wanted you to know about. So I want you to stay really focused with her. Now, one last thing, believe it or not, it's hard for couples to know those five feelings. 
And so I have to make it easier by saying, use the kid version. And, and any of our listeners can use this with kids too. It's mad, sad, and glad because they all rhyme. They're easy to remember, lonely and afraid. Um, so I have them identify what feeling is coming up for her. I will ask him to ask her that. I just want to know what your feelings are. And he's instructed when he hears the feeling just to repeat it back. And if he has to have an invisible force field so that it doesn't pierce him or to use a mantra that may help with his shame. And it may look like, um, I won't let my shame, especially of my past behavior, have the power to make me feel inferior or unworthy or unloved. And that concept came from Eleanor Roosevelt, who said, no one can make you feel inferior without your permission or consent. Mm -hmm. The truth of the matter is we're teaching both people in the coupleship, but especially the person who wronged the other person how to know that was about his or her past and not about the present. If they're in my office, they want things to change. And I want them to have confidence about the work they're doing. I really appreciate when you're talking about emotion and the importance of breaking them down into to, to some, to simple emotions. I use a different list. The list I use has eight, doesn't really matter. Um, but I often have those conversations and especially with the addicts, but I don't think this is exclusive to addicts. I will often tell people, look, there's all these, like you were said, these feeling wheels that have all these great emotion words on them. But what I find is that oftentimes people use the nuance words as a form of denial. Best example, I, I, I have the, the people that come in and they'll sit in my office and say, I'm just so frustrated about this. And I look at them and say, oh, so you're angry. And then they correct me, no, I'm not angry, I'm frustrated. And we get into this conversation about frustration is just small anger. And so there's a lot of work to do up front on, you gotta acknowledge this larger category of emotion that you're in mm -hmm. so that you can start to acknowledge, hey, this is really what I'm feeling at its core before I can start expressing the nuances. And when this uh, ties into empathy, I'm thinking about the, the retreat that Dan and I ran a number of years ago, where we talked about sensitivity and empathy. And with empathy, there's such an important piece about, I'm able to connect with, understand, and recognize my own emotional experience. And then by using that as a base, I can communicate that understanding to someone else. But if somebody has been using either their addiction or sort of like the nuanced emotional words in, in a form of denial, they're not really able to be in touch with their own emotional experience. And so their ability to be empathetic by communicating that emotional experience really gets shut down. And so sometimes what we start working with is, let's work on you just being sensitive. We're gonna get to the emotional experience and the emotional education, which is gonna open up this door to empathy, but we may not be able to start there. Maybe we have to start with you just sort of cognitively thinking about the other person, what they might like, and just being sensitive in your interactions. Well, I like what you said, especially one of those nuanced words is I'm upset. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask them, is upset anger? Mm -hmm. Are you angry right now? 
or are you sad? Because most of the time it means one of those two things. And we all know that once somebody has identified their primary feeling, it can motivate them to be there for the other person yeah. in a whole different way. Another one of those is I feel bad. That's not a feeling. Bad's right? not an emotion. What are you actually feeling? <laughs> Yet it's so vulnerable, right? When you share, if I share, I'm really sad, I'm hurt, I'm, you know, whatever whatever's underneath all uh, frustration or I'm feeling upset. I feel like that's a vulnerable place. And that's, that's the beauty. It allows the other person to join, but that can be also really scary. So how does some, how do you build that safety so that people feel, uh, you know, safe enough to share their primary emotions? I'm putting out there. I'm not sure. What do you guys do? I, I think we have to do a lot of work on building up just self-esteem in general. You know, can I get to the point where I'm starting to feel a little bit okay in my own skin? so that I can tolerate sharing what's going on with me, even if it doesn't, you know, sit perfectly comfortably with that other person. You hey, know, Carol, really... I, am I am curious for you because again, you're doing so much couples work and, and, and exploring this topic of empathy. You know, the Dan's idea of like, how do you, how do you or what do you see when you're working with couples for them to feel safe enough to express or to receive and reflect back empathy? Because there is that emotional safety piece. Do you encounter that as a barrier or how do you deal with that? Absolutely, I encounter it as a barrier because they come in with so much baggage, pain, sadness, anger, whatever. But I see myself and I am actually training coaches and clinicians to really balance the therapy, the coaching with empathy themselves. I say we are a great opportunity to role model what we want to see. And that means I'm going to be a cheerleader for them. I am going to see the progress they're making. I'm going to tell them how brave they are that they're in the office. And I'm going to help each one of them see the other person's progress, effort. You know, there's that old adage about notice the effort, not the outcome. And if I see two inches of progress, I'm all about it because we're a society that we expect immediate, immediate results. And, and the work that I do with couples does not occur immediately. As a matter of fact, it takes three to five years. And that's with them working on themselves individually and together. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's interesting you asked, Jeannie, because I developed this early recovery couples empathy model. Mm -hmm. And um, I really don't think anybody who's experienced infidelity or sex addiction should do immediate couples therapy. I think they need to learn some of these basic relational skills like feeling identification. Um, the hardest thing for whoever's been betrayed to identify as what they need. And so we do a lot of talking about what do you need? What do you need emotionally? What do you need physically? What do you need socially, intellectually? What do you need spiritually? And then last but not least, one that I put off for later on, what do you need purposefully? You know, how can you take this horrible situation, her infidelity, his infidelity, and 
work with this so that you actually grow stronger from it. That's that empowerment technique that I really think we have to do with our clients. And yet sometimes there's so much work to make them feel safe. We forget to do the grief work, the anger work. I mean, literally do the work with them so they can get over to post-traumatic growth. And that's what I'm striving for. I'm telling them in session one that they're going to get there. I use a lot of presuppositions that they are going to get there and they're going to do it together. I don't want to take this too off topic, but would you talk more about that? I remember going to a training presentation you did at ITAP many, many years ago. Uh, For those out there, ITAP is the Institute for... International International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals, but um, you did a you did a, a seminar there many many years ago on post traumatic growth. Would you talk a little bit about what that is and how you see it showing up in couples? Yes. Well, I'm a believer that they don't know how to reframe what has happened to them, and they have trouble reframing what they're learning. And so I teach them that reframing is really asking themselves two questions. And this is not something I would tell the person who's been cheated on right off the bat, but I will use it down the road. And that is, how am I stronger as a result of this? And I always say, you would never ask for this betrayal, this infidelity. You would never have wanted to be part of this club, but the truth of the matter is you are and you're resilient and you're learning those skills right now. So what can you do to identify what you're learning from it? How has it empowered you? How has it taken you from that um, victim to survivor to thriver? And when you start talking about that, they've never even thought about how they could thrive because they have been so hurt and so angry. But when you take a client and you ask them, how can they grow stronger? What have they learned from it? Then you ask them, you know, I've worked in hospital settings and people that have cancer would never have asked for that either. But the truth of the matter is that condition has strengthened them and they've gotten a lot out of it. And so we're gonna list five ways you're stronger as a result. And if they can't, I ask them to come up with one, and then I give them one, and then they give me one. And we kind of do this ping pong where I help them to see their strengths when they can't even see it it themselves. Yeah, I love that, Carol. I, you know, it's so this, these pieces of how am I stronger, how I'm empowered. When I work with partners, I like to say to them, hey, this is a wake up call for you. I don't know what it's a wake up call to, but there's, this has happened in your, I believe that this has happened in your life for a reason. It's horrible. It's uncomfortable. Uh, it can be absolutely devastating, but can we move to a place of, you know, instead of victim? And, and it's interesting because um, I remember one of the first interviews I did was with an interviewer and she said, well, tell me, you know, tell me about the victim. And it just, you know, I bristle with that because it is so disempowering to the person that's going through this experience. Um, and, I've, and, and I think that a core piece is what you had said before uh, is around needs. And so I think for a lot of people, when you start asking this question, what do you need? 
they become very confused and sometimes they kind of make up things. Well, I just need them to help out more at home or I need them to mow the lawn when they say they're going to. They come up with these um, ideas, but it really isn't what they really need. And so is there, is there a way to help people who are listening uh, identify or, or some exercise they can do or something that they could do to, to understand what, what they're needing at any particular time? Okay, so if I heard you correctly, you wonder if there's an exercise or something I could do to help them to identify their needs? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, I, we talked about not using the feeling wheel, right? But I do use that wheel with those six needs that I talked about. And I have them write out what needs they might have. And if they are picking the benign needs or the needs that aren't very deep, because that's as far as they can go, because they're really afraid to be vulnerable and go deeper, you know, I'll suggest, I know that you don't need sex right now, but what is your body craving? What is your mind suggesting that maybe you need that has to do with some kind of physicality? Because physical needs are one of them. Can he stroke your hair? Can he brush your hair? Can he rub your feet? Can he rub the inside of your arm? I mean, what can he do for you? Um, and when it comes to emotional needs, you know, one of the exercises I have a couple do is they mirror for five, three to five minutes. They talk about anything they want and it can be as benign as they want. Um, and by benign, I mean, it doesn't have to be anything deep. But it's interesting when they have that amount of time to talk about anything, and it may just be, I'm sick and tired of you not picking up the kids and you're making me do all the work. And I don't like it at all. And it really makes me feel like I'm alone in this marriage. And then they go deeper and they're like, and I felt like that all my life. And, and then you get to the real truth of the wounding inside. And that's the emotional need that he or she needs to get out. Men really feel pressed to be providers, whether they are or they aren't, they feel that pressure. And so they do a lot of mirroring about that and that they want to be seen for something else, but they don't even know what that is because they don't even know if they have it to give. And that's a perfect opportunity to talk with them about how can they communicate more deeply what is something that they really truly felt sad about? When is the last time they felt lonely? What was that like? Can he share that with her? So a lot of my exercises are experiential. Um, but I do have exercises where I ask them to come up with 30 appreciations of each other. And I do have exercises where I ask each one individually to identify 50 personality strengths, things that they like about themselves. And you know, depending on the reason they're in your office, the worse their issues, we'll be lucky to get three to five. But that's always a start. I always work with the small stuff and then build from that. And I may have her say, you know, he cannot think 
of any other strength that he than he's physically strong. Have you ever noticed him to be emotionally strong? Well, yeah, when his mother died. What did that look like? Well, he didn't cry. And then I say, well, you know, I think it's strong when a man does cry. Uh, have you ever seen him cry? And so we just kind of layer the information and do more excavating so that they can get to that place where they at least have 10 or 15 things that they like about themselves. Because most of our work is about self-esteem, right? Thank you. Yes. I love when you're talking about that, Carol. And, and what really comes up for me is how as we're developing the skill of empathy, it's not just that I'm developing the ability to be empathetic with another person, but one of the other benefits often comes, like you were saying, I get to see some of my own strengths that I'm blind to or that are in my own blind spots mm -hmm. because through that process of empathy, my partner starts to identify and say, this is what I see, this is what I experience, this is what I appreciate, this is what I make up it must be like for you, which often sort of like shines a light on aspects of myself and my own experience that I'm not really even consciously aware of. Mm -hmm. I want to just jump in here and remind viewers that we are talking about empathy and empathy and couples therapy and couples issues. And today we have Carol Jurgensen Sheets, also known as Carol the Coach, with us. And so I want to also take the conversation because we haven't talked too much about betrayed couples or addict sex, betrayal by sex addiction versus infidelity. But how do you how do you use empathy with the betrayal and couples who are trying to heal that piece, mm -hmm. and which is really developing trust mm -hmm. and really understanding each other's experiences? How are you incorporating empathy in that kind of work? Well, what I found that has been really helpful and it's kept couples from beating each other up is that I use that IRCA model. And, and what I do initially, again, after the protocol of the truth coming out and blah, 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 is that I will have them initially use some of those exercises from Help or Heal, but now I make it a couple's exercise. So the first exercise in Help or Heal is, I am willing. You know, what are you willing to do to repair this relationship? What are you willing to do to make her feel safe? Or vice versa. If the female is a sex addict, it would be the opposite. But he has to come up with a list of things, things that he's willing to do, but I actually hand them both the list. Mm -hmm. And we play the match game. She writes down what she needs him to do to make her feel safe, what she wants to see that he might be willing to do, and he writes down those things. And then when they both get done with writing those in my office, then I have them compare and see how many of those match. And what are the things that, that he didn't have on his list, if, if he's the betrayer? Um, it's, a, it's a wonderful way to begin that process of empathy. You know, I, I think in the work that we all do, because we've all been trained the same way, we know that them coming into our office is that first step of empathy. You know, they're wanting to do whatever it takes to make this thing better. And, and they are willing to do things they never would have thought they could have done. And so 
we talk about that and we talk about the disclosure as a major empathy tool. And then the restitution letter is a major empathy tool to her pain, her emotional impact letter. And then they come in for that first session and they do that willingness list. Mm -hmm. And she's sharing what she needs to feel mm -hmm. safe. And she's doing it in a way that's not attacking them or putting them down. She's coming from a place of vulnerability. And when that vulnerability is in your office, I'm telling you, he's able to be more empathetic than he would have ever thought he could. And you know, if I'm working with a couple that have already gone through all this stuff and they have not done that with me and they're a transfer or they've moved into town and I do that a year or two into it, what is really amazing is that his list of what he's willing to do oftentimes changes and she says, you know what, I don't, I don't think I want polygraphs anymore. I, I really want to trust you and I'd like to try for six months to just believe what you're saying. So that's what I'm going to work on. And when a, when a woman in early recovery couples work is able to be that vulnerable and share that she's going to take that step of trust, that kind of fake it till you make it, act as if, you know, what she's really doing is she's saying, I want something and I don't want all the safeguards anymore. I want to do it without the safeguards. Mm -hmm. That's real movement in partner betrayal and sex addiction. Mm -hmm. I want to highlight something that one of y'all said earlier that I completely agree with is individuals doing their individual work first and getting into a place where they're ready for the type of vulnerability that you're describing. And because that's what helps it be more successful. If I can take perspective, I know myself well enough or good enough that I'm accepting of influence is the, what I call it. Maybe they don't have it all mastered for themselves, but they're willing to be influenced by the therapist in the room, being in a place so you can go do this couple's work and, and have it a plan for success. <laughs> and Jeannie, I do it a little differently. And that's what I love about this work is that we can all do it differently. Absolutely. If I ask them both to come into my office, the minute she calls for him, because he's a sex addict and he's hurt her, I say, I want you both coming in. Um, and then what I do is I, after that three-part process, disclosure, emotional impact, then I begin the early recovery couples work and put him in and her in to individual therapy simultaneously with the couples work. Mm -hmm. For me, I found that to be the most effective thing because... I got to help them navigate the trauma that is in the house um, while they're working on their individual stuff. So early recovery couples work is that crisis management. Mm -hmm. and, and I believe in doing that from the get-go mm -hmm. and then referring them out to simultaneously doing the individual work. And I find it so successful. And you, can you just... Uh deepen that a little bit more for us, the distinction between early recovery couples work versus couples therapy for anyone that may be confused. Yeah. See, I don't believe that sex addiction and partner betrayal should ever be treated in couples therapy until they've learned those basic relational skills like identifying feelings, identifying needs, learning some about trigger busting, 
learning empathy formulas, learning how to take her perspective. Now she's gonna need to take his perspective, but it's not gonna happen for a while. Um, and then I wanna help him simultaneously with her talk about his shame because his shame may come from a early, early childhood life. But what we know to be true is that so much of this betrayal is trauma reenactment of something. And so I got to help them juggle childhood issues with trauma. And early recovery couples work means that he learns the seven principles of conflict. And, you know, he learns how to listen to her pain and know that's about his past, that that's not who he is today. He is not that guy that cheated on her. He's that guy who's wanting to restore the relationship, you know. And when, when whoever the betrayer is learns that they are really supposed to stay in the moment, they're supposed to stay in the present, which is a hard thing to learn, um, they're much more able to contain her pain which I keep saying that, that I want him throughout the three to five years that they're going to work with me, I want him to say at least three times a week, when he notices it, you know, I can see that I caused you that pain. You're triggered and I know I did that to you. And the truth of the matter is men usually run from that advice because they're afraid if they bring it up and say, I know it was really hard for you to go to the Christmas party because you were afraid you were going to see my affair partner. And I'm so glad that you did not. But I know that the whole time you were anxious, I did that to you. I did that to you in the past. When he brings that up, instead of escalating things, it brings back her emotions because he has not forgotten. That's right. and if he can be able to not go in shame and reckon with her anxiety and pain, he has contained her her feelings and shown great empathy. Carol brilliantly said, I, I that little segment was so critical. I've had that conversation a million times with, with some of the addicts I've worked with. And they the paradox of if I lean into the pain, if I empathize, if I take responsibility, they assume they're gonna poke the bear and it's gonna get worse, but usually it does the opposite. So I, I so loved how you said that. You know, one of the things that I have found, <clears throat> excuse me, really helpful is if the addict is, is in a therapy group and that group is functioning really from a partner sensitivity place, um, like I, I had a group that I was running last night and I, I told them this, I said they were rocking it out of the park because they were able to be empathetic and, and like role model for each other, how they might sort of be vulnerable and sensitive to the partner and, and sort of approach the partner in a different way. But they were also able to sort of like call each other on stuff. Like, I think you were triggered there and that got in the way of what you were trying to do. And so, and, and when they're taking that step of vulnerability, which is so scary, then they've got this other group of, of, of addicts who are also trying to do the same kind of work as a support that they can lean on if they do it really well and it goes it, it goes awesome, they got this group of people who can be their cheerleaders. And if it doesn't go quite so well, they've got other people who can sort of like, you know, catch them, be that safety net and help them figure out how to how to do it differently next time. So, you know, it's not, I realize that there aren't 
therapy groups for addicts that have that partner sensitivity piece to them everywhere. But if, if, if that's available and an addict can, can hook into that, especially in this work, I think that's, that's so incredibly helpful. Well, it's crucial. And I'm so glad you said that because the truth of the matter is um, the father of sex addiction is Patrick Carnes. He started ITAP and he trained all of us and now there are 2000 of us. And, and when I asked him in a lunch line, Patrick, if there's anything I could do for sex addiction, what would you advise me to do? He said, hands down, start a sex addiction therapy group, right? Well, it's no accident that having written this book on empathy, um, people re were referred to me that wanted to learn more about that. So my men's group, you know, it's really interesting because in women's groups, not partner groups, but women's groups, I don't let them talk about their husband. I want them to focus on them. <laughs> you know, they talk all day long about their husband. I'm like, nope, not going to do it. But in our empathy group, that's all they talk about. Mm -hmm. And so when somebody comes in and says, when a man comes in and he goes, I'm just disgusted. I'm doing all this good work. I know I'm doing good work. And I'm, I, she's not seen it. She told me my AVR was a script, which they get a lot. It yeah. is a script, so mm -hmm. they should. Um, and it's just not working. I feel like giving up. But sometimes I even feel like walking out. I don't know how long I can take this. And, and another man, partner sensitive, will go, dude, are you kidding me? You cheated on her for 22 years. And you're saying after nine months that you're ready to give up? Did she do that? Dude, get a life. You need to have empathy here. Mm -hmm. And they immediately go, oh, yeah. That's really good. I really do need to put in my time here. Mm -hmm. I, you know, they'll say, does that mean I have to do this for 22 years? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Another guy will go, you have to do it for you... a lifetime, dude. I wonder. Let, what me, you're... let me hold off on Tim. I'm sorry, because we're sure. actually running out of time. Yeah. And Carol is a very, very busy woman. And we're so pleased that you came to join us. So thank you so much. And we are talking about empathy and how that plays out with couples therapy. Is there any kind of closing comments that anyone needed or wanted to make before we- I got, I got one. I would love to hear. So Carol, you've got a new book coming out. Can you tell us more about it? All the listeners, tell us about the, your new book. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I'm in Florida right now by myself so that I can finish my book on empathy and couples. And it's going to call, be called, no surprise, right? Help them heal. Um, and they're going to learn- empathy together and they're going to do exercise that will create that closeness and connection and it it is the helper heal model there's no doubt about it but they it also is a book about what she's going through you know that partner betrayal and how do you deal with that it will teach men how to promote more safety It'll teach men how to help her grieve, mourn, and get angry. And they will be the recipients of that. And it will teach them together how to give back, how to identify their post-traumatic growth, and what they can do so that somehow, some way, they find some sort of purpose out of all this. So I'm really excited about that. Be looking for it. You don't, you don't need a therapist. You don't need a coach to do this work. But of course I advise it. Um, but it is something for the people that aren't lucky enough 
to have a professional who's got skills in this area. And so, I, I just want to, I want to highlight, and, and I know that we all know this, that we tend to use male addicts and female partners as sort of the go-to, but, yeah. you know, we also are very aware that there are female addicts with the male partners out there. And I'm sure that your, your help them heal book, you know, would be equally helpful for partners where the, 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 the woman is the addict and where the male is the portrayed partner. And you do such good work. I'm just grateful that you're out there and uh, glad that you're part of this community. Thank you. Carol, where, where can they get the book? Where, where can our listeners get the book? They can't yet. I got to finish it. Right, right. <laughs> but they can get it at any, any bookstore, Amazon. Um, they can get it through Sano Press. You know, my publisher is a CSAT. He's written his own memoirs and books on the addictive mind, specifically sex addiction and how mindfulness can be helpful. And I am his biggest champion because I am doing his mindfulness course to help the betrayed learn how to ground and resource and change those reactivity um, issues and to help him to really identify what's going on for him and how to change that. So it's all good. We are all a loving community and, and that's what makes this so powerful, isn't it guys? Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me come on your incredible podcast and be part of the conversation. We're so happy to have you. Thank you, Carol. Thanks, Carol. You're amazing. Thanks, Carol. Bye. Thank you all for being here today and joining the conversation. Uh, We had Carol Jurgensen-Sheets, also known as Carol the Coach, with us today. And if you enjoyed our program, please like where you can. Facebook, YouTube, Podbean, Bean Places. rate us highly wherever you find us we would love to have you help us spread our conversation out to whoever would find this helpful 